0: Thanks, Holly. Appreciate that. So, in the past, I, uh, I've sometimes used the Sunday closest to uh, New Year's to bring uh, a message with a, maybe a specific New Year's type challenge. And, and to do that, I've uh, often used questions from Jesus as the basis uh, for those messages. Uh, this year, I, I decided to do a, another question, only this one is not from Jesus. And this one is actually asked in a negative uh, connotation or sense. Uh, So the basis for this year's uh, question comes from a story that I'm uh, suspecting uh, the vast majority of people here are probably familiar with, Uh, and I'm not so much going to do a a study or an exposition of that passage, but rather I'm going to use it as just a a springboard for a very simple um, challenge for us in 2018. And, and this challenge is not going to be a, a new thought for anybody here. It's definitely not original uh, with me. In fact, it's as uh, old as the human race itself because it is a question that comes from the children of the very first people, or at least one child as the other one wasn't in a position to be asking a question uh, when we're looking at uh, this incident. So grab your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Uh, didn't make a video for this one because it's the first book of the Bible. You can, you can uh, find that fairly easy. Genesis chapter 4, and uh, we'll just be looking at one main verse there, but telling a bit of a story. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity to be together this morning. We're so grateful for the fact that uh, you are all that we need. And uh, Lord, we pray that our hearts, our minds, um, our wills would learn to, as Holly sang, to be still and to know you are God and to know that you have uh, all that we need in this life and we uh, can trust you in that. So God, we're praying now that as we look into your word, you'll continue to strengthen us, to grow us, to encourage us, to challenge us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alright, so uh, the Bible teaches that God created Adam and Eve, the very first humans, and that they were a special creation of God, distinct from everything else that He had uh, created. Uh, as uh, God made the world, you know, the land and the seas and the sky and the stars and the moon and and, and, and the sun and, and all the animals and, and the fish and the birds, He looked at everything He made and He proclaimed claimed that it was good. And as it was originally created, it, it was good. But when He created man, He did something different than in any other part of the creation. Genesis 1.27 tells us God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And it's the image of God that that sets man apart from all other animals, all the rest of creation. Beyond that, God's Word teaches that God Himself is spirit. He does not have a physical form. So when the Bible talks about us being created in the image of God... It's not as if it's speaking physically, as if God looks like a man, only, you know, bigger, stronger, and better. Uh, That's, you know, Greek mythology and other things try to present it that way, but that's not what the Bible says. God doesn't look like anything. He is a spirit being. So the image of God doesn't have anything to do with the physical, but rather with the spiritual capacity of man. When uh, any time an evolutionist might uh, try to argue uh, with me that animals, uh, all animals, including, including humans, uh, have to be uh, evolved from, you know, like some common ancestor and, and this type of thing, because, you know, our DNA is so close together, I always say, Pff, so? I mean, what difference does that make? God created all of us to live on this planet. We're all carbon-based, water and food-needing animals, beings, right? So I would expect that our DNA would be very similar. And in fact, the more closely an animal would resemble the movements and shape and activities of a human, you would expect that. DNA to be even closer. So, yeah, I would expect a chimpanzee to have much closer DNA with me than, say, a sea slug. Uh, uh, although my wife accuses me of being uh, occasionally just during the football season. But, but no, you know, you know, yeah, it's no big deal. We, we would have physical uh, uh, similarities with the animals, but it, it, it's not the physical form that makes us different from the animals. It's the image of God. It's that spiritual capacity that man has. You never see an animal baptizing new converts, right? They don't build churches. They're not holding evangelistic crusades. They do not have a spiritual capacity. When God created Adam and Eve in His own image, He didn't just say that this was good as He did with the rest of creation. He proclaimed it to be very good. There was a distinction that was made. And the reason God created beings in His own image was so that He could have a real relationship with them, right? You have to have that ability to connect, to have a true and real relationship. And things were rolling along fairly well for them uh, until sin entered the world. And again, we're just Short uh, uh, synopsis of this story: You know, uh, Satan tempted Eve, and and she offered her husband to come along with her, and he spinelessly agreed and did, and, and as a result, uh, uh, the world was plunged into sin. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and and later on, they had two sons, Cain and Abel, and, and um, they were both born with a sin nature then as part of the curse, part of the fall, as all people coming from them would be. That's why we all have this sin nature. And having a sin nature, they were predisposed to commit acts of sin. Cain and Abel, uh, they grew into young men, and and at a certain point, each of them brought an offering to the Lord. Abel brought some young animals from his flock as sacrifices to God, while Cain brought some of the produce of the fields uh, that he had been tending. And um, we're, we're not given the details. We're We're not given this part of the story, but apparently at some point God must have given them the instructions on what were acceptable and unacceptable offerings because the Bible very clearly says that God was pleased. He accepted uh, Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. And this ticked Cain off to no end. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with... uh, that, um, let me tell you, being ticked off rarely leads to anything good. In fact, uh, the book of James puts it this way. It says, uh, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Well, as as most of you probably know, the rest of the story, Cain's anger grew and and became so intense that one day, when they were out in the field together, Cain rose up against Abel and, and killed him. Apparently, he thought, since they were all alone, no one would know what He had done. At least that's the attitude he appears to take with God when God comes and confronts him with that. Look at verse nine in Genesis chapter four, it says, "Then the Lord said to Cain, "Where is Abel your brother?" And he said, "I do not know." And we're going to end at that point there for a minute. Uh, that shows Cain had very poor theology about God if he thought he could lie to God and get away with it. And, and, you know, as you continue reading in Genesis, it becomes very obvious that God did not ask that question in, out of a need for more information, right? Uh, uh, he knew exactly where Abel was. He knew what had happened to Abel, and he knew who did it. God asked that question in order to give Cain an opportunity to confess and repent. That question from God uh, uh, would force Cain to take, take stock in what he had done. Uh, this was his chance to feel remorse, uh, to take ownership of his actions, and, and to come clean. By the way, I, I think God... God's questions do the same thing for us today, don't they? Okay? He, he may not uh, come down and, and directly ask you a question as he did uh, Cain, but through his word. You ever had God ask you a question because he's trying to get you to admit where you're at in life? Maybe the question comes through a, a good spiritual friend, a, a parent, a spouse, a, just a good friend. And God uses those questions to give us an opportunity to come clean, to repent, to turn to Him. That's what God was doing with Cain. Only Cain rejected that opportunity. Instead of coming clean with God, he lies and and tries to dismiss his responsibility. He lies, oh, I don't know where Abel's at. And then he tries to dismiss his responsibility towards Abel. And that becomes clear as you look at the rest of verse 9 and get the question, the question we want to look at today. After he gets done lying about uh, where Abel was, Cain adds this thought, Am I my brother's keeper? By the context, we can pretty safely assume that Cain was asking this question with that negative, flippant type of attitude. In other words, he was saying... are you asking me for? Am I supposed to be keeping track of my brother? And the answer he was expecting was, oh yeah, no, no, that's not your job. But uh, interestingly enough, God actually never answers Cain's question. He, he, He simply skips over that query and then he shows Cain that he knows exactly what has happened. Look at how God responds in verses 10 and 11. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain, he, he was punished for what he had done to Abel. And, and although God did not directly address his question, the clear implication was, yes. You are your brother's keeper. And, and God uh, gave that expectation that we would care for and be responsible for one another. And that expectation of God was was clearly laid out and then codified when God later on gave uh, the law through, through Moses. And, and in giving the law, much of it d- deals with how we should treat each other, and our responsibility towards one another. And it's all summed up for us in one single command found in Leviticus 19.18 when it says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. By putting that last phrase, I am the Lord, saying, this is it. This is the way it is. Here's what you do. And most of us are probably more familiar with that particular statement because it was used in conjunction with a very famous parable that Jesus gave. It takes place in Luke chapter 10, and and we're actually going to spend a little time there. So if you want to flip from Genesis over to Luke chapter 10, you can um, follow along with that. Go from the first book of the Bible to the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke chapter 10. and the story uh starts in 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 verse 25 and it begins with any anything coming we got it? we got it? All, right. all right am i on this one now or where am i at okay i'll stay closer to this one all right so uh um we, 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 where was I? Lawyers. That's where I was at. Starts with a lawyer. Uh, and uh, he's popping up to ask a question, verse 25. this is, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you know, I, I think it's one of the proofs of the deity of Jesus Christ that when this Lawyer asked this question with the intent of putting Jesus to the tent to the test. It says to put him on the spot that Jesus did not respond by telling a bunch of lawyer jokes, right? I'm I sure it had to be quite uh, the temptation, but he resisted and, and didn't tell any. Unlike me, no, actually, I'm not. I'm going to resist too. We're we're we're, gonna, we're not going to get into that. But he uh, instead responded by asking a question back to the lawyer he said to him what is written in the law how do you how does it read to you and in other words Jesus is asking what what have you seen I mean as you looked into God's word what have you seen and being a good lawyer he knew the law and he answered by a Repeating a portion of the Shema, uh, a part of the ritual Jewish prayer that every man said every single morning. And the, this particular part was known as the Great Command. And it says this And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the response that Jesus gives to that has confused and thrown off a few people uh, down through the decades afterwards because here's what Jesus says. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So, so what? Is Jesus saying that you can earn eternal life? That you can merit your way into heaven by doing those two things? And the answer to that is yes and no. Okay? Uh, he, it's yes because if you loved God perfectly and loved your neighbor perfectly, you would not sin and therefore you would qualify for heaven. However, The reason Jesus had to come and give his life as a sacrifice is because no one is capable of loving God and neighbor perfectly because, as we saw earlier, we are all born with a sin nature thanks to the fall of Adam and Eve, and so, therefore, we all sin. So, while in theory, the lawyer gave the right answer based on a reading of the law, in practice, it was a dead end because... No one can do it. It's not possible. And the lawyer, he was smart enough to know that he didn't do those things perfectly because look at what he says next. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You have to justify yourself when you know you don't measure up, right? That's when you start justifying yourself. And he knows. He didn't make it. So he, he wanted a little bit of a reprieve here. He wanted the standard to be lowered enough so that he could feel good about himself. The Jews had created an elaborate system of who counted as your neighbor, and who didn't. And non-neighbors, well, you didn't have to love them, right? I mean, the Bible, the verse only says to love your neighbor, so non-neighbors, you don't have to love them. So if we can figure out who the non-neighbors are, we can treat them any way we want. And the Jews had a good system with that. And he was wanting Jesus to, you know, verify that particular system. But this time, in response to the lawyer's question, who, who's my neighbor, Jesus doesn't give an answer. He begins to tell a story. And he starts with a man, some unnamed man, who's taking a journey. Now, everybody standing around there would have assumed it was just a good Jewish man taking a journey, and he was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a 17-mile trip, which, you know, when you're on foot, that's a pretty good hike. Uh, uh, Walking at a fairly decent clip with no breaks and no stops, that's going to take you about five hours. But it it wasn't the distance that was the biggest problem for this man. The Jericho Road... Was was infamous in that day for the danger that it uh, uh, posed to travelers. It was a favorite route of thugs and robbers because of all the canyons and, and, and rocky crags in that area. It provided perfect hiding places uh, for brigands to to conceal themselves and jump out and attack um, unaware travelers or it provided great escape routes and and hiding places for them to get away, too. And and so this road was known for the dangers it posed. Uh, To try to bring it into today's context, it would be kind of like taking a trip through the inner city of, like, Chicago or L.A. on foot, by yourself, at night. Right? Right? It's just not something that most people would do alone. But this man, he was alone. And as would be expected, he was jumped by muggers. And they beat him into submission and actually beat him far beyond that. They stripped him of his clothes and anything else he had of value. And then left him half dead on the side of the road. And the lawyer... And all the other people listening to this would have just quickly and easily identified with that because that happens. That happens all the time on that road. They've seen it. They've known it. They've heard it. But now this is where the story begins to take a bit of a twist on them. Because as that man is laying there half dead, Jesus says a priest happened to become walking down the road. Well, the priests are the good guys. The the, the priests... Are as soon as the people heard that, say, "Oh man, lucky for that guy. There's a priest. he's going to help him out for sure, because you know that 's what priests are supposed to do. They get paid for that. They get paid to be nice and to help people. And so certainly uh, this priest is going to help him out. But no, when he comes, it says that the priest went all the way to the other side of the road. Not only did he not help him, he didn 't want to be anywhere close to the guy. a little later on a Levite comes walking down the road. Now, a, a Levite w- was not a priest, but he was a temple worker. He, he, he worked in the temple. He would do uh, all the other jobs related to the worship in the temple and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and certainly... Certainly the Levite's going to help this guy out because, you know, unlike the priests, the Levites are used to getting their hands dirty and doing some manual labor and and working with people and helping them out. So the Levite will help him out. He works in the temple with with the worship of God all the time. But again, the exact same attitude prevailed. The, The Levite went as far away from the man as he could possibly get. Then... Jesus said, a Samaritan. A Samaritan came by. Now, if this was a melodrama, this is the point where the crowd would begin booing. Because everybody knows that Samaritans are the bad guys. There's probably Samaritans who beat this guy to start with. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Just, just a, a quick backstory uh, after King David and then Solomon in the Old Testament after those two the kingdom of Israel divided into two segments the northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and in the northern kingdom they did not follow God in his ways they decided they wanted their own place of worship so they stopped coming to the temple in Jerusalem they built their own altars against God's rules and in fact included pagan uh, worship practices at those altars and uh, Beyond that, they started marrying, intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. And it was these disobedient, half-breed Jews that were called Samaritans based on the capital city of Samaria of the northern kingdom. They were all called Samaritans and they were despised. They were hated by any full-blooded Jew. And when Jesus mentioned the Samaritan... Everybody thought that this guy would not only walk by the beaten man, but he'd kick him limes down. Because, you know, that's what Samaritans do. So imagine their shock when Jesus said the Samaritan felt compassion. And more than just feeling sorry for this guy, he chooses to do something about it. Jesus said the Samaritan came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The 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 oil and wine, that's that day's equivalent to our hydrogen peroxide and neosporin, right? Um, he cleaned them up, cleaned up the wounds, took care of them, bandaged them up, did everything in his power to care for this man. Then put him on his own animal and hauled him to an inn where it says he then took care of him there. And then after that, pay, an inn was the nearest thing they had to a hospital in those days. You, you could you could pay the innkeeper to feed soup and clean the band, you know, uh, put on clean bandages and take care of a guy for him, and that's what he did. He paid for this guy's care and promised the innkeeper you take care of him. I'll be back here in a while and when I do, I'll pay you anything extra that I owe. You just take care of him. So the people listening to this story, not only was that shockingly generous, but it was a Samaritan who was doing that. And after telling the story, Jesus turns to the lawyer and asks him a question. Which... Of these three, do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Oh, talk about being put on the spot. I mean, right? There's only one right answer, and everybody knows what that right answer is, but none of them want to say it or admit it. And now Jesus is looking this lawyer in the eye and says, You, verbally, in front of everybody, you tell me. Which one of those guys is the neighbor? And the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to admit that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. So look at the way he puts it. And he said, the one, the one who showed mercy toward him. So what was Jesus trying to prove at that moment? Well, he was trying to show this guy that you can't write off anybody as a non-neighbor. The answer that Jesus wants him and us to get to the lawyer's initial question, who's who's my neighbor? Is anybody who needs you. Anybody who needs you. So now... Let's go back to the beginning of the message. When, when Cain asked his question, am I my brother's keeper? He, he was talking about his literal, you know, physical brother, right? But we know that the Bible, especially within the New Testament, uses the term brother in a much expanded, uh, broader sense than that. Sometimes it is used to refer to the Jewish nation as a whole, any Jew uh, is, is your brother. Occasionally, the Bible uses it in, in the sense of the whole world, people. You know, we're all God's creation, created in the image of God, and we're brothers that way. But almost always, most frequently, the, 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 the just primary use of the word brother was to refer to those who are in relationship to one another because they're in relationship to Jesus Christ. In other words, anybody and everybody who has come to faith in Jesus Christ is my brother or sister. And we are our brother's keeper. Beyond that, anybody who's in need is my brother or my sister. It's interesting. Some some people think uh, that God got this backwards, but uh, it's been my... Um, uh, understanding and, and experience that most of the time God gets it right and it's us who get it backwards um, but they, they think that uh, the emphasis on brother should be the whole world that we should love the whole world uh, you know, because then we'll show them uh, Jesus' love and, and God does it the other way he, he, he calls us into a family when you become a Christian and he says you love one another A, I, I forgot, I didn't put this one in the verses up there, so you just have to trust me on this. There's, there's a verse in Galatians uh, uh, 6, uh, 9 and 10, uh, where it says, Let us not lose heart, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Why does he put that emphasis on that way? Well, he does because he knows as we learn to really love one another, to take care of each other, to be there for one another, to be our brother's keeper as we share and encourage and, and, and help and support one another, those who are outside the household of the faith are going to say, Whoa! I want to be a part of that. I want what they have. I, I want to... I keep forgetting I'm getting the wrong from this. I, I, I want to be able to uh, experience that kind of love and support myself. How do I get that? Well, let me tell you how you get that. Jesus Christ brings you into a family when you come to faith in Him. That's why God did it that way. And, and so, uh, understand, neighbor, it can be used in that same way. When God gave the law through Moses he often used the term neighbor and used it in that narrower sense of those who were in relationship to one another because they were in relationship to God. He made a distinction between the foreigner who might be living among you and your neighbor. And so in other words, it was God's people who were neighbors to each other. And the point Jesus is making in this is that we have a responsibility towards one another. Starting with, with the household of faith, but growing out and expanding beyond that. I didn't finish uh, Jesus concluding Mark to the lawyer after this lawyer gave the right answer about who was the neighbor. Look at verse 37 again. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him, then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So that's it. That's our simple challenge for 2018 let's be our brother's keeper, to be there for one another, to go and do the same as that Samaritan did, showing compassion and meeting needs. The Apostle Paul, oftentimes when he was writing letters to the early churches in the Bible, he would say, hey, you guys are doing this, but let's do an even better job. Let's press on. And that's what I'm challenging us for today. It's one of the reasons I love being a part of this church. Yeah, we are doing this. We we really do care about each other and the needs that one another have in here. Let's make it our goal to do even better. It might be a physical need, such as Jesus was describing in, in this parable. Who in this church needs help? Whatever... The reason for their need, whatever the limitation is, who needs help? And what can I do about that? Not not what can the church do about that? What what could I do about that? Perhaps the the need's not physical, maybe it's emotional or relational. Who's lonely? Who needs encouragement? Who needs someone to spend a little time with them? Who just needs a visit? Again, I'm not talking about some church program here. I'm talking about all of us being aware of those around us and being our brother's keeper. You never have to go through the church hierarchy or or, uh, some program in order to help someone Or to visit someone. You know, talking in in the context of uh, of the church, the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, Titus, a pastor, and he said, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. That's what we're talking about here. It's just what we do as brothers and sisters because we are a brother's keeper. Maybe maybe the need around you is not physical or emotional. It's, it's spiritual. Someone needs someone to come alongside them for some specific reason. Maybe someone needs to be discipled. And don't let that word disciple scare you. Oh, I can't disciple anybody. I don't even know what that means. Well, actually, it's pretty easy. To disciple someone means helping them take the next step the next step of obedience, the next step of faith, the next step of growth in their life. We can come alongside each other and help each other do that. It it might be helping them learn a little bit more about the Bible. It might be helping them to apply what they already know. Say, how's this work in life? Being there for one another. Spiritually, it can happen impromptu, one on one. It can happen in small groups as you purposely meet together. It can happen as we interact with one another between church and Sunday school or afterwards. How are we going to be there for one another? That's our challenge for 2018. Let's let's look for ways to be our brother's keeper. And then let's do it. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that you have put us in relationship with one another. God, you've made us part of something. We belong. We belong to a family. We belong to a brotherhood because of Jesus Christ, because of what you've done. And in belonging, God, we both have a benefit and a responsibility, a a benefit of having others there for us, but also the responsibility to be there for others. So, God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand the hurts and the needs around us. And help us to be our brother's keeper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.